Thank you, Amy. What a wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord. It's good to be with you this morning. Let me invite you, if you've got little ones uh, up from four years old up through grade six, if they'd like to be in an age-appropriate service, they can do that now, or you can keep them with you. It's uh, your choice. It'd be great. Thank you, teachers, for serving there. In order to redeem our time together, I'd like you, if you would, to turn 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you would, your copy of God's Word. If you're a note taker, you can find that on the back of your bulletin. If you'd like a bulletin, just lift up your hand. Somebody will get one in your hand. you find on the screen behind me, after the uh, Noah slide, that uh, if there's uh, the take-home things that uh, I want you to take away will be underlined, and you can, you can write those things down. And may this not be the first time that you're in the Word in depth this week. I, I pray that that has been your experience all week. And if you're still looking for a way to get through your Bible and begin reading through your Bible cover to cover, you can find a Bible reading calendar there on the back under the missions map. We encourage you to take that and begin reading day by day through the Word. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12. I'm going to read from verse 12 down through verse 20. Close out chapter 6 and Lord willing we'll get through those verses today and close our time out in this marvelous chapter. Starting in verse 12, it says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Verse 13, Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Verse 14, Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Verse 16, or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one with her, one body with her, for he says the two shall become one flesh. Verse 17, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Verse 18, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Verse 20, For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Stop right there. Now, as we noted last week, Paul comes to Corinth. He plants this church. He begins, along with those who are redeemed, rescuing people out of a pornographic culture. Obviously, these people had lived a pagan lifestyle. Uh, there wasn't a uh, Christian subculture protecting them or insulating them from some of the worst parts of the culture that this is a new church plant. These are all new believers. They had lived a pagan life. They had a former religion in which part of their worship were acts of immorality. We looked at that last time. We saw that Paul is very concerned about them for a couple of reasons. Number one, he knows that old habits act as a very strong temptation for the new life. And those habits have been and continue to be a strong temptation for the church. Number two, uh, the culture is salting the church, which is hindering the health of the church and its effectiveness and testimony. So Paul's concerned about those two things as he writes back to this church where he had pastored for 18 months. He wants to give them this whole package. Chapter 7, verse 1, you'll notice that he begins a Q&A session with uh, the church, so obviously he had received some letter back from them asking him questions concerning their relationship with their spouse uh, with uh, and having to do about marriage and singleness and divorce. But before he gets to any of that, he wants to take care of this issue that's inside the church that will poison any of those relationships and, and uh, destroys the very foundation that individual believers stand on. So Paul is doing this and laying this foundation of, uh, of the principles of sexual purity. And, and he's going to answer their questions, but he wants to make sure that he knows they know these principles to begin with. And as I told you before, uh, this message, last message, and over the next several weeks, the messages will be PG. And so I say that just to give you, as parents, uh, fair warning that uh, some of the things we'll talk about will be things that you will need to chat with your student about, particularly if they're under the seventh grade mark. If they're around seventh grade or above, you probably have already had these conversations, and there won't be anything that we will uh, stay on that will... Uh, exacerbate in any way our, our imaginations or anything we stay I stay away from all of those things but we will talk frankly because Paul is speaking frankly and quite frankly this is a huge problem in our culture even today and so it's an important and very relevant I think study 
taxing for me to put it together in a way that we can get the whole entire meaning, but I'm excited about going through it with you today. Now, um, all of these principles that he asks, uh, Paul is going to talk about all have to do with the body. Last time we saw the first four, and I'm going to just go over them very briefly with you. We did a lot of background here for each one, and so you can catch up online if you missed those things. Now, principle number one is uh, found in the first part of verse 12, and uh, look there with me if you would. Verse 12, your copy of God's Word, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. Paul is really reiterating that all things are forgivable, but some things, some sins uh, you involve yourself with really cheat you. That's Paul's point. Now, there's many applications here, but particularly here, Paul is talking about uh, purity and uh, inside the, the Christian's behavior. So immorality is one of those things that God forgives, and God has and will totally forgive and completely forgive all sin uh, by the blood of Jesus Christ and His grace. But for some sins, Paul makes, wants to make it clear, particularly like this one, like immorality, there's a very high price because there is loss built into that sin. And we saw that illustrated from a number of places, Proverbs 5 and 6 and 7. I took you through those passages, which are very important to me as I uh, disciple my own young sons. But it, there's a very high price to pay in the body. It's very clear about the price. And, of course, it's not just dealing with sons. It's dealing with daughters. It's dealing with anyone who wants to live a holy life and what to avoid. Sin always subtracts. It never adds. And so Paul wants to make sure that they understand that some things uh, really rob you. Number two principle uh, that we saw, the believer's body is brought under the power of sexual sin. That's Paul's point uh, here in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. That word mastered is that verb exercising authority over exosiazo. It's used here of the body, and there's no more enslaving thing than sexual sin. And so Paul wants to make sure that they understand that um, some things are forgivable, but some things trap you. God will forgive, but you can be captured by some things and mastered by them. So, here are these Corinthian believers, and in the name of liberty, losing their freedom, becoming slaves to their own desires and to the old habits that they had before they were redeemed. And we looked at a number of places where Paul uh, has warned of this very issue, given some preventative measures to avoid the pitfall, and of course, uh, curative measures in order to get out. And so, we looked at that last time. Now, we found principle number three in verse 13 food is for the stomach, and the stomach for food, but God will do away with both of them. Principle three, the believer's perception of the body is changed by sexual sin. And we say that just to say, uh, in this statement, Paul's just referring to the way uh, sexual immorality was justified in their culture. In other words, it's just like eating and drinking. It's just a biological issue. What's the big deal? And the Corinthians had that little saying, it's just like eating and drinking, just filling a need. Sex is for the body, body for sex, stomach for food, food for the stomach. What's the big deal? And so Paul's taking that to task, and he says, no, that's not going to work. Your little adage doesn't work, and it doesn't apply. And then he takes the next seven verses and explains why this is the case. And he says next, he says, food is for the stomach, stomach for food, but God will do away with both of them, yet the body is not for immorality. Your perception, he says, of the body is all wrong. The need for food is going to be done away with, but your body is going to be raised. Your body is going to be Forever. So Paul says, don't make the mistake of thinking that the physical act of eating is the same as the physical act of immorality. There's a huge difference between the two. And then we saw our first positive principle, the body is not for immorality, uh, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. And so, principle number four, your body was made for the Lord. Paul just uses the same pattern of speech that was common there in Corinth, and he moves from a false statement to a true statement. Your body was made for the Lord. And that's the true union. And Paul wants them to understand this very important principle. One that's just obvious, the body's made for the Lord and it's going to be eternal. And another important point that we didn't get, have time to get into last time, and it concerns a real understanding of verse 13, where in verse 13, look there if you would, it says, food is for the stomach, the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them, yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. And from the other side of this, and this is where we kind of ran out of time last time, God made the stomach and he made food to satisfy the hunger and the need for, for nutrition. And God made the body in such a way that it has a natural desire for intimacy and he gave marriage to satisfy those desires. So eating is a natural function and sex is a natural function and both needs are met through God's provision, both of food and of marriage. Uh, 
but to satisfy intimacy, the Lord did not give, and here's the other side of it, did not give adultery or fornication. The body wasn't made for those things. So it was made for food, and, and God gives that temporary satisfaction in the body, and, and intimacy, God gives that satisfaction inside marriage. Now, just as a footnote, I think it's really important to look at this. He's going to do away with the need for sexual intimacy, just like he's going to do away with the need for food. Uh, and it seems to be the whole point Jesus is making as he answers some questions from religious leaders of his time in Matthew 22, 24. And here's what he says. He says, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brothers as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Verse 25, Now, there were seven brothers with us. So they said, you know, this is the law. This is what you're supposed to do to make sure that the line continues and, the, and uh, all the divisions stay as they're supposed to, to do. It. And so they want to get Jesus in a bind. So they say, okay, say the dude has, you know, uh, you know, seven brothers with us. And the first married and died having no children and left his wife to his brother. And, and so the second and the third down to the seventh. Now, what really should be the question is, why are all these guys dying? I mean, you know. Probably ought to eat out instead of eating in, all right? But anyway, all that aside. Okay, so the second, third, on down to the seventh. So obviously they keep passing down, try to make sure that they're taken care of. Now, verse 27, last of all, the woman died. Verse 23, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? And they're thinking about a very awkward situation up in heaven. That, you know, here's seven guys that have been her husband, and, you know, she's up there, and, and they're all vying for that spot. And um, verse 28, it says, uh, for they had all married her. Verse 29, but Jesus answered and said to them, you're mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. Verse 34, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And all the wives in here said, <laughs> I'm kidding with you. So we can add that to our knowledge uh, of the future, of a further understanding of marriage. See, um, marriage is given to meet the needs for intimacy and sexual fulfillment inside the marriage confines, and those two needs, both the needs for food and the stomach, and the need for intimacy inside marriage, both of those will be done away with. There's going to be a time when those will no longer be the case, okay? So the body is going to be glorified. It certainly has biological aspects and biological functions, but they're not the sum of the body, okay? The body is far beyond that. We could say it like this, food's for the stomach and the stomach for food, that's on a horizontal plane, okay? But Paul indicates that your body and the Lord are on a vertical plane. And that's what he wants them to keep in mind. That it's not just about the temporary fulfillment of those things. Uh, the body's not for immorality, but for the Lord. That's the whole point. And immorality defi defiles that vertical relationship. Your stomach was made for food and they're temporary, but your body wasn't made for immorality. It was made for the Lord and it's eternal. And within God's will, intimacy is included in marriage. And outside of that, you violate it. And that takes us then to Paul's next principle and helps the Corinthians understand why immorality must be barred from the life of the believer. It's found in verse 14. Look there if you would. Verse 14. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Now that's just obvious. I mean, we've talked about that numerous times. I don't have to go through a whole bunch of proof text to tell you that your body's going to be raised. Principle number five, the believer's body will be raised with Christ. There's your next step, okay? Principle five, the believer's body will be raised with Christ. And Paul uses this as a reason why immorality is not to be named, and it just kind of sums up the previous point. Listen, you're on a vertical plane here, and so immorality is not for the body, because the Lord's going to raise the body up. He raised up the Lord, and that was the first fruits, and he's going to raise up you, okay? God's going to raise your body and glorify it, and you're going to spend eternity with him, so don't defile it. It just you know, kind of reminds me, we'll get here soon, but 1 Corinthians 15, 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the trump will sound, and the dead will be raised, and imperishable and will be changed. I mean, it's just so continuous throughout the New Testament that we understand that the body's going to be raised. So we, we get that, okay? So listen, Paul says, listen, there's, there's a horizontal plane and there's a vertical plane. And realize that that body is going to be raised. It's going to be made new, it's going to be glorified, but it's going to be with the Lord. And the, body, and the Lord didn't make the body to be satisfied by immorality. Now look at verse 15. <coughs> Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ, so that's principle number six. The believer's body is joined to Christ. It's one of the most marvelous uh, concepts in the New Testament. A reality that's just beyond our ability to grasp it in a very real sense uh, for us. Uh, in other words, Paul's making this point, and he's moving this way, and he wants them to grasp this, and he's going to get even more explicit and direct. 
But in other words, do we take what is in reality Christ's hands and feet on earth and do what is immoral with them? And what's the answer to that? No. Okay? Your bodies are members of Christ, he says. Don't you know this? Paul says, obviously not. Or you wouldn't consider immoral sexual behavior something you should be doing. So once again, he's giving them principles to build on. Knowledge is important to understand who you are and who you are in Christ. And then you build on that knowledge and then you begin to act on, those knowledge, on that knowledge and make that true as you interact in your life and cut things out and put to death the deeds of the flesh and all the things we've spoken of in the past. Now that relationship is illustrated well in Romans 7 verse 4. If you remember, we went through Romans. There's a number of passages here, both in six, uh, chapter 6 and chapter 7, that are very relevant. But Paul says this, he says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another. Who would that be, Paul? Well, that would be to him. And who is him? That's Christ, who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Now, that's an important passage. and kind of grasp the, what Paul's trying to get across. The condemnation that was yours by breaking God's law, and the sentence that was due, which was your death, was paid by Christ's death when you believed. And we understand that. That's, that's describing salvation for us, okay? There was a spiritual union, and there's a physical union. You're joined with him spiritually, and you're joined with him physically in order to bear fruit, okay? Because obviously that's done inside the body, right? You're bearing fruit inside the body, by doing the things the Lord has determined for you to do, by showing love and joy and peace and gentleness and long-suffering and goodness and faith and meekness and self-control. All those things are fruit of the Spirit. They're done inside the body, okay? And I think Paul just makes that clear and continues to, to uh, clarify that for us. Now, 1 Corinthians 1, 20, uh, 12, 27, right there at the bottom of the screen, makes every believer's position very clear. He says, now you are Christ's body. So it's just stated as a fact and individually members of it. So he speaks to the church in general, you are Christ's body, the church, and individually you are members of Christ's body. So both of those are true. The church is Christ's body, that's a spiritual union, and a physical union. And because of that, every individual believer's actions are, are, his, physical are his physical body at work, his hands, his feet, his voice, his compassion, his acts of kindness. Physical body plays an integral part in that whole, you are the body of Christ. Okay? Now, that now members is the Greek word melos, okay? Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Now I think that's important just because that's the same noun used in verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 6 that we're looking at. And it's the normal word for a body part, okay? And I think as we look through the, the passages that deal with the body, and if you go through the Be the Church class, you've done that with me. As we look at what it means to be the church, part of it is to be the body and individual members of the body. And 1 Corinthians 4 calls it by whatever every joint supplies. So there's an actual physical body illustration that deals with individuals and the church at large. And so Paul thought it was appropriate in the first century to remind the church of this marvelous reality as part of the principles they should assimilate when they think about their bodies and they think about immorality. And it's just as relevant today as it was then. And Paul doesn't leave any room for misinterpretation in the last part of verse 15. Look there if you would. So, 1 Corinthians 6, 15. So, shall I take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Now, here's the thing. If the reality hasn't set in yet, he wants it to. He says, you should understand that you're one with Christ. And you're members of Christ's body individually. When you were saved, you were joined to Christ in a spiritual, and as we've seen in reality, a physical union. And so Paul wants to make this very clear. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, we have the same type of teaching, and he put all things in subjection under his feet, his being Christ, and gave him as head over all things of the church. So now you're getting the body picture, okay? Christ is the head, which is his body, that's the church, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church in general is the body of Christ and takes care of the deeds that Christ would do because he's in charge over it. And then in Romans 12 verse 4, he says, for just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, that's speaking in the body of the church, speaking of the body of Christ again, so we who are many, now individuals, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So not only is there a spiritual and physical connection to Christ, it obviously extends to each other as well. If we're a member of the body, obviously, as you look at your own body, you, you know, your right hand is a member of your body and so is your left hand, although they're different. They're all functioning inside the body. And so it appears that Paul's point is 
To make it as obvious as possible, he wants them to understand that because you are one with Christ, it's like saying to him, I'm going to commit immorality, so please come and partake with me. That's the point, okay? And to even say that is difficult. And to think that, I know, is difficult. I sat in my office this week and I thought, that's just so awful to say and it's so awful to think. But that's the reality Paul's trying to get across. He's not mincing any words here. Shall I take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or get into an immoral relationship, whatever that is, adultery, you know, fornication, whatever it is, outside the marriage bounds, however it plays out, that's how it works out, okay? But, you know, it's difficult to say that, yet those in the Corinthian church who were involved in immorality, that's what they were actually doing. That's what Paul wants them to understand. And people who are involved in adultery or fornication or homosexuality will actually say sometimes that God doesn't mind because it's love, right? Isn't it better to love than it is to not love? Or isn't it better to love than it is to hate? See, and they cast Christianity in a very bad light because we, through the word, condemn all relationships outside of a marriage between a husband and wife as sinful. But they'll say, isn't that better to love? Isn't it better to love each other? And so the teaching on immorality sometimes becomes my opinion or your opinion. You're forcing that on me because it's much better to love. But see, it isn't, it isn't our opinion that we're talking about. We're just talking about what the Lord says, structures inside the marriage, what constitutes the marriage, and what's supposed to go on in there, and what goes on outside of there is just considered immorality. And are you taking the members of Christ and joining them then in an immoral relationship? And 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 is really clear. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So it's not your opinion. It's not my opinion. If you reject it, understand it just becomes you rejecting what the Lord says. And we understand that. Okay. We understand the whole conversation going on out there. We understand who's really getting rejected and it's the moral law that God has set up. But you know, that moral law is just as immutable as the physical laws of the universe that he set up. Okay. I mean, gravity works and it always will. The Lord set it up that way until he changes it uh, in the new earth. And just like moral law is going to have its own circumstances as a result of violating it, just like it's if you violate the physical laws of the universe. The Lord's in charge of those things. It is him who has given his Holy Spirit to us. And if you reject that teaching, it's just rejecting what the Lord has said. Now, Paul makes a clear statement. You're not rejecting me, you're rejecting God. Sex inside a marriage is a union of two becoming one. It's a spiritual union. The Lord looks at those who are, who are married as one. It's a physical union. And the obvious illustrations, as we've talked about, two people becoming one, the obvious illustrations are children that the Lord can give from that union. That's the physical manifestation of the two becoming one, okay, in the very real, most real sense. And so immorality is this physical uh, function, and it's a spiritual union. So in a real sense, Paul's point is that immorality in the life of a believer it's a serious profaning of making Christ one with that sin. And don't do that. He goes, think about that. That's what's going on. And just as a footnote, and we'll get more into this in chapter 7. That's why the Bible says that when adultery is committed, that's grounds for divorce, see? And you can back up into that from this teaching. Why? Because they've consummated a union outside of the marriage and profaned the spiritual union between the man and the wife, see? So the Corinthians or any Christian who commits an act of sexual sin pulls Jesus right into it. Paul says, just like that two people become one, just like that, you have become one with Christ. And just like in that physical union, if you violate that by committing immorality, you've created this divorce situation. Just like that, you violate that relationship with Christ. Now, that's forgivable, but costly and can bring you under its, its uh, manipulation. So Paul just says this in verse 15. What's it say? He says, may it never be. May it never be. Now look at verse 16. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? So he just goes to the other side. Listen, you're joined with Christ, and now you're joining in one, a one-body relationship with someone outside the marriage bed. For he says the two shall become one flesh. And Paul is referring to the practice of cult worship, obviously, because that's the context. Uh, what went on inside the, the Corinthian culture with worship and using uh, priestesses and and priests to commune with the God in an immoral way. So it says, Do you not know that one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. And Paul is referring to the practice of cult worship, but it would certainly be referring to sexual intimacy outside of marriage. That certainly applies as well. And the two, he says, shall become one flesh. And Paul's just quoting from Genesis 2.24. That's exactly what the Lord says. Paul's obvious 
Emphasis is the physical act outside of marriage, which some of the believers in the church there in Corinth equated to just a biological function along the lines of eating. He says, no, it creates a one flesh relationship between two people. So the passage from Scripture, Genesis 2.24, is the same one quoted by Jesus then, because it goes right back to all of this. It's exactly the same foundation on all of this teaching. In Matthew 19.3, some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him, asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Verse 4, and he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So he doesn't even directly answer the question at first. He just says, how was it at the beginning? He created one guy and one girl, okay? It wasn't seven people and work it out or, you know, just kind of make it all happen. I'll just create six and you just kind of pair off however you want. One man, one woman. How was it at the beginning? Think about the beginning. That's what he says, okay? What happened there? Verse 5, and said, for this reason, because he created it that way, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Don't you remember? That's how it was. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So here's the thing. Because there's a physical and a spiritual bond of one flesh, Jesus says, don't divorce. And the Pharisees respond by saying, oh yeah, well, Moses said that we could divorce. So what do you got to say about that? And so he says this. Verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of the hard, your hardness of heart, Moses permitted. So he corrects their incorrect statement of command. He said, Moses permitted you to do this, you to divorce your wife, but from the beginning, it has not been this way. It wasn't supposed to be happening that way. This is because of sinfulness in the human stream. This is because people desire sinfulness rather than, and walk in the dark rather than the light. And so they create this situation that's untenable for a faithful partner uh, with an unfaithful partner. Jesus says, because of your exceeding sinfulness, Moses allowed for divorce. But it wasn't like that from the beginning. And then Jesus reiterates Moses' teaching and the rule for a biblical divorce, which we'll look at in the future when we get to 1 Corinthians 7. He says this in verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So once again, he uses the same foundation. You've gone from that, that sacred relationship between a man and a woman and taken outside the marriage and joined yourself to someone else. You have violated that relationship and you've committed adultery. And of course, Mark talks about it and says, and you create an environment where your spouse that you divorced, divorced will also create, uh, will if you divorce for any reason besides immorality, you create an environment for your spouse that also creates um, adultery with them. So immorality can be the reason for dissolving the marriage. The Bible assumes always, as we've talked about before and we'll talk about again, the Bible always assumes remarriage, so it gives the final outcome. If you do this, then this will be adultery because it assumes there's going to be another relationship. Adultery creates a physical and a spiritual union with someone else. And divorce, apart from this reason of unfaithfulness, because the Bible assumes remarriage, creates the circumstances whereby both parties will be involved in immorality. And that's what Mark 10.8 basically says. So the understanding of Jesus intended here is clear. Uh, the underlying principle is the same one we see in 1 Corinthians 6. There is a spiritual union between two people involved in a sexual relationship. And so he says, listen, don't drag Jesus into all that and realize you're joined to Christ. Okay, so don't go and, and do those things. Now, Paul uses the reference from Genesis 2.24 again in Ephesians 5.22. And I'm giving you a lot of cross-references here, beloved, because I think it's important that we get a very solid foundation and understand why this teaching is consistent throughout the Word, okay? Because there's lots of reasons in our culture, and there's lots of circumstances by which people bring to the table, and this is the reason why I'm going to divorce, this is the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing, this is the reason why I got in this relationship, this must be the Lord's will because He wants me to be happy, or whatever may be the case, Okay? Or this is, I'm just, you know, I can't manage myself because I'm genetically predisposed to being unfaithful or whatever ridiculous thing comes out next, okay? The bottom line is this, see, in Genesis chapter 5, verse 22, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Verse 24, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Obviously, 
There's a spiritual oneness between the believer and Christ, which Paul's referencing in 1 Corinthians 6, just like there's a spiritual oneness between two who are married, which he's referencing here and connecting with that relationship with Christ in the church. And Paul calls on this common knowledge to be the model for a husband's interaction with his wife. He said, just like Christ loved the church, men love your wife. And how did Christ love the church? He gave himself for it. He sacrificed himself on her behalf. That's the way you love your wife, he said, okay? There's this relationship, a spiritual relationship, a physical relationship between Christ and his church and between individuals in the church and their marriage partners. And this becomes the model, okay? And in verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself a church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. So it really gives a, con- a code of conduct. We've looked at this before. I won't go through it at length, but it talks about how, what you do with your words, men, how you, what you do with your actions. All these things create that environment that mimics the relationship Christ gives to the church. That becomes the headship that you interact with, sacrificing yourself, cleansing her by your words, the things that you say to her, uplifting her, your desire to see her more pure, more holy, more uh, glorified as you go along. Why? Because you're one. Christ and the church are one. Individually, Christ and the individual believer, the church as a whole, the husband and the wife. Okay? Now that's the point Paul's making here. There's a physical and spiritual oneness between them. So Paul can say then, he who loves his own wife Loves himself. Why? Because the two are one. Understand? That's the point he's getting to. They're already one. This is what you're supposed to act like because this is how Christ treats the church. You're one. You love your wife just like you, it's just like loving yourself because you're one. Now, verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. So, the experience we have with Christ, how he lavishes his love on us, how he purifies us and makes us more radiant, more lovely, more glorified. That's the same kind of relationship we're supposed to have with our marriage partner, our spouse or our husband. And there's that connection again. Husband loves his wife like Christ loves the church because we're members of Christ's body and the husband and the wife are one as well. Now verse 31 says this, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother. Now once again, we're getting right back to Genesis 2.24 again, aren't we? And, that, and they shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ in the church. This mystery relationship is Christ in the church, and it was hidden and is now revealed. The oneness as a believer being part of his body, that was a mystery. The, the church being developed, that it was going to be Christ's body on earth, that was a mystery. Individually, physically, members of his body, uh, individually, like we've seen several times, that was a mystery. No one would have guessed that in advance, that that was going to be how God would dwell with people, that Christ was going to give himself for the church, that it was going to be that very close, intimate relationship that would, that would be the model for a relationship between a husband and wife and show what that looks like. That, that was a mystery. What isn't a mystery, beloved, is the oneness between a husband and wife. Because he said that's how it had been since the beginning. Okay, Genesis 2.24, we gave you that information, he said. Okay, so Jesus and Paul, it's a physical and a spiritual relationship that's been like this from the beginning. Husband and wife, husband leaves the father and mother, joins with the wife, the two become one flesh. That's always been. What's cool, Paul says in Ephesians here, uh, is that the cool thing is, is that Christ shows us what that looks like, and that's his relationship to us. Okay, now. Back to our passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There's a big subpoint, but important to us. Well, let's, I'm sorry, let's look at the last part of Ephesians 5. Nevertheless, okay, and once again, it just kind of sums this up. Even though Christ and the church is, is a mystery and has been revealed, this other part you know, God set it up in, in Genesis, each individual among you is also to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So even, the mystery is past, as we said before, uh, that now has revealed Christ in the church, but what's always been around is this relationship between husband and wife. Now, now back to our passage, 1 Corinthians 6, 16, okay? Paul says this. This just kind of sums this up. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her, for he says the two shall become one flesh. Now you understand the, the background to two becoming one flesh, okay? Paul says, how could you not know this? It's not just physical. It's physical and spiritual. And it's been that way from the beginning, 
And Paul, as Paul said earlier, your perception of the significance of what you do with your body has been changed by your sexual sin. You need to get this straight. When you unite with a temple priestess, you become one flesh with them in the deepest sense of communion of your beings. When you unite with someone who is not your husband or your wife, it is not just biological. It's not just some physical need that you're meeting. It's the uniting of two persons in the deepest, most intimate sense. When you do it with somebody outside your marriage, you've created a spiritual union with that person. And if you're joined to Christ Jesus, you've pulled him with you right into it. That's the ugly part that Paul wants them to understand. It's not just biological. It's not just the stomach for food and food for the stomach and the body for sex and sex for the body. It's not that. There's a horizontal plane and there's a vertical plane. And now you're violating, he said, the vertical plane. Okay? Let's move on to verse 17. Paul just flows to the obvious. He says, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. If you're joined to Christ, then the two have become one, both physically and spiritually, and the marriage of two people mirrors that relationship. And you can see where Paul's going, see? You're, you're the one who joins himself to the Lord, one spirit with him, just like when you join yourself to your wife, it's a physical and a spiritual joining, okay? Or your husband. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, 20, 11 2, he says, For I'm jealous for you, with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband... Paul says, when you came to faith, you were betrothed to one husband. Who's that person, Paul? So that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Being joined together with Christ is a significant impetus to put to death the deeds of the flesh, which is, as we've seen, part of Christ's body. If you remember when we went through Romans, right? I mean, part of that impetus, impetus that you've been joined together with Christ, presented to Christ as a pure virgin, that's a great impetus to put to death the deeds of the flesh. You're part of Christ's body. Joined to Christ, presented to Christ here, kind of in a marriage type of, cer of ceremony, presented as a pure virgin, okay? So, very important principles. Paul's building on this, very consistent throughout the New Testament. In the Gospels, in the Epistles, we see the same thing expressed, okay? Romans 6.3 is one of those amazing places that I told you just a moment ago. Romans 7 and Romans 6 both give this in just the most wonderful of terms. It's a place where we see the joining together of the believer in Jesus. It just is part of the very nature of who you are. It says this, it says, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, stop right there. Paul says that upon conversion, so he's speaking of those who are saved, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, everybody who's born again inside the church, those who have the right relationship to God through Christ. We were baptized into Jesus. What's that mean? Well, let's look at the implication. If you were not merely a justified, legally declared righteous person who chooses to do as he pleases. If you became a Christian, you were brought into intimate union with Jesus, okay? And I think the best way to understand that is salvation isn't just, you know, God up in heaven looking down at Parker and saying, okay, it says sinner bound for hell. I'm going to cross that out and I'm going to stamp over it and just say saved, okay? It's not just that. It is that. It is me being declared righteous, it is God's holiness being given to me positionally. It is those things, but it's not just those things, okay? It isn't just something in heaven that has nothing to do with me here. When you become a Christian, the Bible says your life is fused together with the life of Jesus Christ. I am, if you want to use the correct interpretation of the word, baptized. I am immersed into Jesus Christ, okay? I'm one with Jesus Christ. When I came to faith... Baptized into Jesus. I became one. I was immersed in him. That's a marvelous concept. A couple of the passages that illustrate that for us. 1 Corinthians 10.1 says this. I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. This is cool. Listen to what it says here. Talking about the fathers, talking about those which we would consider the Old Testament, those who came uh, into the land, those who were delivered out of Egypt, those, those people, okay? Here's what it says. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. Now, this is speaking of the children of Israel in the wilderness after they came out of Egypt. And it means to come under the authority of. It means to participate in Mosaic leadership, to participate in Mosaic privilege, to participate in Mosaic blessing, that which God did in Moses' life, reach to the people who followed him. So to be immersed then, same idea, immersed into Moses was to be involved in all that God was doing in the life of Moses, Okay. And that's a good parallel. As the children of Israel were fused into, made one into Moses, he was their leader, he was their anchor to the Lord. You know, he was, he was the channel by which God spoke. He, he was the one with the face that shone, that revealed the glory of God. They were in Moses in the sense that they were united with him. 
Okay, that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 3. Okay? Now, but in a fuller and a deeper and more real sense, as that was the shadow and the reality became those who came to faith after Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection, we are baptized into Jesus. We are immersed, placed deeply into Christ. Okay? Just like the shadow of it in the Old Testament became the reality of it in the New Testament. You are in Christ, okay? A huge reality for you. And as it relates to Romans 6.3, as you can see by the context, he's speaking metaphorically. That is this. Paul is not, at this point, talking about actually being baptized with water. There's water in the background, so they understand what that looks like, going under and coming up, okay? Uh, you know, 1 Corinthians 12, baptized by the Holy Spirit. You know, once again, thinking about real water, thinking about being immersed, all those things, so they can understand what it means. But he's not talking about water there either. He's talking about an immersing ministry where Jesus is the baptizer and through the agency of the Spirit of God, he immerses us into the Spirit and thereby in the church which carries in it the universal life of the Spirit. So those are profound thoughts. We're baptized into Christ, right? We're, we're baptized with the Holy Spirit, immersed there, okay? And they just remind us how important water baptism is. It shows us in a real physical experience what's going on in the spiritual realm. So in Romans 6.3, he says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, so at a time in the past you came to faith, you were immersed into Christ, okay? We are immersed deeply, fused together with, become a part of Jesus. It speaks of an intimate, personal fellowship. Just a few other verses to help us understand the concept, because I want you to just see how broad this is. It's amazing, okay? 1 John 1.3, Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, Matthew 28, how, Lo, I am with you, how long? Always. I'm always with you. From now on. 1 Corinthians 6, 17, he who, But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. The one we're looking at now. Okay? So when you become a Christian, you become one with him. That's an astounding statement. I don't think it's possible for us to understand it fully here. We will when we're with Jesus. We have to accept it by faith at this point. That's what Paul's calling the Corinthians to do. Understand this. You are one with Christ. And we can understand it enough to know, this is what I say a lot, we can understand that enough to know what it should look like here, okay? Whether or not we understand all the implications of being fused together with Christ in the eternal state, what that looks like in our glorified bodies, what we can understand for sure is this, that if we're fused to Christ, that's got to make a difference in how we conduct ourselves now, right? That's the point, isn't it? And that's the truth I think Paul's trying to help us understand. Galatians 3.27, for all you who were baptized into Christ, here, this is great, have clothed yourself with Christ. And here Paul just equates the baptizing into Christ, the one with Christ, as putting on of Christ as one and the same. So there are two ways to speak of it. In one sense, it's like being immersed into Christ. Other sense, it's just like putting him on over you. And now you're together as one. Colossians 2.11 says the same thing, and we could just make, we could do a couple of weeks of messages just about this, but I'm giving you just this overview because Paul wants, he's assuming they understand what that means. You're one with Christ. Don't you know you're one with Christ? How important is that? And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So a whole other concept here, right? having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised up with him through faith in the working of God. So it goes back to baptism. It happened. This circumcision of Christ happened. This putting on of Christ happened. This being one with Christ happened when you came to faith. You were raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. So, beloved, in a sense... You've been placed into his circumcision. You've been placed into his death. You've been placed into his burial. You have been placed in his resurrection. You have been made one with Christ. And that's why Paul is so incredulous in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, how could you join your body to immorality? Because he says, when you do that, you're just joining Christ to immorality. Because you're together as one with him. Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We died with Christ. We rose with Christ. We ascend with Christ. We reign with Christ. Ephesians 3.21, he overcomes. I'll grant him to sit down with me on my throne 
as also I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So listen, just from that alone, if we just closed our Bibles and just went home, we would be able to see that it isn't possible for a person to continue in the same relationship to sin that you had before you met Jesus because now Jesus is connected to you in an intimate way. And the picture of that on earth is the marriage relationship between a husband and wife. As a result of this, that one truth that you've infused to Jesus Christ, who's eternally holy, your life has changed. And Paul wants to remind him of that. It's almost like he's pressing the reset button. I taught you all of this. For 18 months, I was with you. I spoke to you. Apollos, who was marvelous in speaking, obviously went through all of this stuff with you. And yet, here you are, he said. And the, the culture assaulted the church and your old habits are making their way back in and you're still going and you're, you're joining with a temple prostitute or a priestess or you're having immoral relationships as chapter 5 said. This is still the issue and you don't realize how important this is and the vertical plane your body is on. 1 Corinthians 6.17 But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. You've been placed in his circumcision. You've been placed in his death. In his burial, you've been placed in his resurrection. We died with Christ. We rose with Christ. We ascend with Christ. We reign with Christ. And Paul says, now you know all of that. Why would you ever drag him into these relationships that you're having? You don't want to do that. See, Know what's the truth. Reckon it to be true in your life. So begin to act on it. And yield your members to works of righteousness. That's Romans chapter 6, right? So change that behavior. And that means that you can, beloved. The, the scripture is not telling you to do it and not giving you the power to do it by the Holy Spirit in your own life. But it's so easy over time to quench the spirit by uh, continuing in sin. And then the Bible has no power in your life and you're reading it. It's meaningless. But you've, you've quenched that spirit's work who wants to work inside of you. And you've forgotten, just like the Corinthians have, all that's true about you. The marvelous truth about you. You've been placed in him. So how could you drag him into it? If that's been happening and those habits and baggage from the former life are encroaching, if the culture is assaulting the church, then what should you do? And here's a very cool verse, verse 18. What's it say? Flee immorality. Flee immorality. It isn't complicated, says Paul, okay? We try to make it all complicated and whatever. Listen, you don't need to find out if you're genetically inclined to a certain type of behavior, okay? Run. Get out of there. It isn't, you know, stand up and face it and claim victory. No. Okay? Get out of there. I mean, it's like we saw in Proverbs 5.8. You know, you're going to have a very hard time resist, you're, you know, you're not going to have a very hard time resisting immorality if you don't go where it is. Okay? Don't go where it is. Don't place yourself in that position. Don't put yourself behind that computer. Don't find yourself a quiet spot with your phone. Whatever. Okay? Flee immorality. That's an active participation on your part, isn't it? And you have the power to do it, don't you? Because you have the Holy Spirit residing in you and you're fused with Christ who makes intercession for you with the Father all the time. If you run from it and stay far away from it and are deliberate about it, you're going to be okay. See, And just kind of to confirm that as he talks to Timothy in 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy 2.22, now flee, again, youthful lust. Timothy's a younger guy, flee. Get out of there. Don't sit there and take it. Get out. If you're looking at something that qualifies as something you should flee from, flee from it. If you're reading something that qualifies here, put it away. Get out. If you're in a situation that's headed in a compromising direction, get out. Everything isn't complicated. Okay? And then this last part, and pursue, here's the other part, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, here it is, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So there's this great fellowship issue that occurs with believers of like mind, with men or young men of like mind who want to be pure in their life, and they want to flee. And when you begin to flee, the Holy Spirit is very active, not quenched. You're acting on what the Word says to do, and then you have the power of the Holy Spirit working in you and the power of the Word at work in you. So don't expect it to be a revitalization right when you first start. You've quenched the spirit in your life. Some things are really having, you're having a hard time with some things. And you begin to do that. Okay, I'm going to flee. I've been, I've been whipped by this sin over and over again. But now I'm going to flee. Today is the first day. Lord, I'm just acting on your word. I'm fleeing from this. And I see the direction I'm going here. Or I see what I'm looking at. Or I see where I normally go. And I'm not going there. See, Paul, Paul says flee immorality. 
He says, I know your culture in Corinth is like it is. I know what you came out of. I know what's in your memory, okay? I know how you used to act. I know what you used to do. Flee from it. Flee. You take action. Surround yourself with others who are taking the same action. And call on the Lord as you're fleeing. I'm fleeing, Lord. I don't want to go here anymore. So Paul says, flee immorality. And then he says something very unique here. And um, there's really no other place where we see anything like this. So I think it's just a warning. And so I want to look at it. It says this. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. I think principle number seven can really be, and you can word it however you want, the believer sins against his own body by indulging in sexual sin. He sins against his own body. Right? You know, that's, that's a hard one to grasp, grapple with, and Paul doesn't explain himself. And there's no equivalent other places, okay? So I think that by context, this point just seems to be a warning. Here it is, okay? While sexual immorality is not necessarily the worst sin, okay? And as the Bible tells us, all sin can be forgiven, this type of sin, as Paul said earlier, it can take control of you and master you, or it causes loss. This type of sin, here again, he's given kind of a warning by Paul's statement, and certainly by observation, has a way of destroying a man or a woman like no other sin does. All of the sins are outside the body, except for this one, Paul says. That's inside the body. And I think Paul's point appears to be this. You can commit other sins, and those other sins will affect you at some level, and all sins subtract, all of them. All of them take away, okay? But the sin of sexual intimacy with someone else besides who you're married to or outside the marriage bond is the deepest uniting of two persons because we saw that already, okay? Therefore, it has unique impact in that it destroys a person at the very roots of their being. That's what he says. Intimacy outside of marriage has a unique impact, just like it can take you captive, just like it's very costly, it has this unique impact that it begins to destroy the person at the very roots of being. And, and beloved, I'll just call to your mind, and we don't have to illustrate this too much. You, maybe you've had some experience here, you understand. I would just say this. You could document Paul's point just by the lives of many Hollywood personalities, particularly those who were child stars or children of stars. And watching them grow up in Hollywood with that decadent, immoral, hedonistic lifestyle that's there and see how it destroys the core of the person. And there's a number of young ladies who've made themselves very popular on the internet over the last, and on news over the last six months, who I think illustrate that as well as anybody, and young men as well, who've made big headlines. All sins subtract and all sins cause harm, but this sin, Paul says, destroys a person at the foundation of their being. It robs them. It brings them under its power. It changes their perception of truth. It uses the body that was made for the Lord. It abuses the body that was raised with Christ. It profanes the body that's joined to Christ, and it destroys your own self. It's opposite of everything the Lord intends for the body that he wants to sanctify and eventually glorify. Now, the last two principles were closed, verse 19, okay? We're done in a minute and 30 seconds. Look at verse 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And so this next reason why Paul tells the Corinthian believers they should not be participating in morality is this. The believer's body is the home of the Holy Spirit. The believer's body is the home of the Holy Spirit. And beloved, this is the sixth time he started with a statement, do you not know? In other words, He's saying, listen, I was with you 18 months. Apollos has been with you all this time. You know this. Do you, this is, and that's another way it's euphemistic of saying, this is common knowledge. How can it be that you don't know this? Some of you came from the teaching of Peter, some under the teaching of Jesus. You don't know this? Paul says, you're the temple of the living God. He resides inside your body. And again, very practical, obvious reason for purity. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. You know, as in 2 Corinthians 6.16, Paul's making a point about being in a close relationship with unbelievers, whether that's marriage or, or business relationship or, or partnership or whatever it is. And we'll get there because it's very practical about how you conduct your life on earth. But he says this, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now, who is the temple of God? Because he didn't make that clear at the beginning. Mark this, for we, what's he say? We are the temple of the living God, just as God has said, 
I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, that last part is a promise to Israel as they're setting up the tabernacle. And you can see that in Exodus, okay? But, but in this fullest sense, it was said to every follower of Jesus. For in the fullest sense, there is a fellowship and a worship in the most intimate of settings right inside your own physical body. You didn't persuade the Holy Spirit to come. You didn't earn the Holy Spirit. You didn't try to find the Holy Spirit. You weren't groping around hoping he would do something for you who is given to you as a gift. And again, Paul's point is clear, and he's made it numerous ways, so we must make it again. Are they going to take the temple of the Holy Spirit and do the sorts of things that they had been going on? No, no. No one wants to do that. That's just so sad, isn't it? Remember who you are, who lives in you, who you're joined to. And when it comes right down to it, Paul says, remember, principle nine, the believer's body is owned by the Lord. The believer's body is owned by the Lord. When it gets right down to it, your body isn't even yours. I mean, it's joined with Christ, it's fused with Christ, it's, you know, you're one with him. You, you know, all of those things are true about you. And ultimately, your body isn't even yours. 1 Peter 1.14 same sin uses the reasons uh, to abstain. He's same reasons as obedient children. He says, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. In other words, what you did when you were, you didn't know God's law. What the Corinthians did when they didn't know God's law. What we did when we didn't know God's law. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it's written, you shall be holy for I'm holy. You're already positionally holy because he's called you and declared you holy He's put his Holy Spirit in you. Be holy in practice. If you address the Father, Peter says, who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in, a fe in fear during the time of your stay on earth. You understand how God looks at every action. You understand he evaluates every single thing. Nothing's beyond his observation. If you know that, then conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Knowing that, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers, but with the precious blood of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You're not even your own, he said. Conduct yourselves holy. He judges each one's work. You belong to him. He bought you. What was the price that he paid? His blood. Is there anything that describes salvation even more clearly than that? Your position, his position, and after all those things, Paul ends with this, that body of yours, if you're a believer, it doesn't even belong to you. It belongs to God, and he's seen fit to come and dwell in it, and he's going to raise it, and it's going to come be with him forever. Wow. So he says this at the very end, verse 20. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. And after all the reasons... He tells you all the truth that's yours, what's actually really occurring when you're in immorality. After all of that, he gives you all that information. He says, flee immorality. And then and this, glorify God with your body. What should you do with your body? Glorify God with it. Praise God with it. Make it, his attributes clear in your body. Make it a temple fit to worship it. Make it a temple fit to worship it. Put all this stuff together, he says to the Corinthian church. Understand who you are. Understand the sin you're involved in and how, how deadly it is for you. Understand what your position is in Christ. Understand what's actually going on when you join in immorality. Flee it. You're bought. You're purchased. You're paid for. Your body is owned. You're the temple of the living God. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Make it a place that worship can occur. Very simple, isn't it? It's not complex. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. We're out of time. your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, just briefly, maybe you're in a place where you're being robbed. Maybe you're being brought under a power of sin. Maybe you're being fooled by your perception of truth and you just think it's just, it's not a big deal. Maybe you're misusing the body that was made for the Lord or abusing the body that's going to be raised with Christ or profaning the body in that relationship as you are joined to Christ or destroying yourself really at your core. Ruining the temple where the Holy Spirit dwells, acting like you own yourself. No matter what that situation is, Paul had to deal with this in the first, first century Corinth and, and every church has to deal with it. Every individual has to deal with it. And God will forgive you 
That's right. He will forgive you. He will. He always does. But it can harm you. And it'll take you captive. You don't know that yet. You will. But he'll forgive you if you seek him. And then flee. It's not that complicated. Flee. Glorify God in your body. Make it a temple, a place where you can worship. Father, I thank you for this time together in the Word, dealing with a very pertinent subject, one which causes trouble for all of us. Keep us pure, Father, as you can. We know your commands are for us, not for you, so we want to flee. We determine to flee even now. And we're going to make positive action even today to make sure we begin to flee. And as you forgive, Father, you once again are a temple where worship can occur. We don't want to join Christ to immoral behavior. We're one with him. Bring those thoughts back to us, Father, regularly as we face life starting tomorrow. And some of the same situations where we've struggled and failed before, I pray that you'll give us victory starting now. We name those even in our own life. Those places we want to avoid. We're going to flee. Empower us to do that, Father. We want your word to be true in us. We're the weak link there. Your word is always true, and it always works out like it's supposed to. And our own flesh, we need to bring under subjection. Father, I pray that you'll help us to stop quenching the spirit, which is the power that's in us to subdue the flesh. And I pray that you'll help us begin to do that in this very important area. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.